Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Thanks for joining us. This week we're joined by author and Princeton University historian Julian Zelizer. Remember, we take your questions each episode, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can. Don't forget to tell us where you're from. This episode is sponsored by our friends Blinkist and HelloFresh. Please check out their links in the show notes. And thanks for supporting our sponsors. It really does help make this podcast happen. Tell your friends about us and remind them to, to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James got a lot to talk about this week and got a special new segment, which we'll talk about later, which I think our listeners are going to love. But I think we have to start off talking about the tragedy unfolding over in the Middle East. The Israeli-Palestine violence is more perilous than usual. I just think Biden has got to pressure Netanyahu, Netanyahu, not for an overall settlement, that's going to take years if ever, but to simply end this violence, which is in both Netanyahu and Hamas's interest, as I think New York Times columnist Tom Friedman so so brilliantly captured. Uh, Hamas, because any peace accord uh, weakens their support among the Palestinians and among the supporters uh, that they're getting from outside, and Bibi because his only way out of jail may be to stay as prime minister. He was he was in real danger of having to step down after that last election, and now he's likely to stay. So I wish Biden would immediately nominate an ambassador with the skill and the knowledge of a former ambassador like Martin Indyk, and play a more active role and tell the Israelis that it's not an anything goes. It's not that I think the Israelis are wrong and the Palestinians are right. I don't. But I think that uh, the only way the violence stops is for Biden to pressure Bibi. Well, there's an unusual feature of this that the other ones didn't have. And there's actual conflict going in inside Israel between the, the Arab and Palestinian uh, population and the Jewish population in Israel. And they're not, they're striking. I was listening to radio this morning. They're having to close hospitals. They have those pharmacies because a lot of Arabs work there. I thought 47% of the pharmacists in the Israel are, 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 are Palestinian. So, I mean, you could pressure him. He could cease fire and stop shooting into Gaza. Of course, you'd have to get the Gaza people to start shooting into Israel. And you also got to try to get people to stop fighting in the streets in Israel. This one, I think it's particularly difficult. And I, I, I desperately want to be wrong. I've worked in Israel. I know a lot of people there, a lot of friends there. I know a lot of people, family there. But this one seems like it, it, it might be able to get a ceasefire at some point, but it, it's not going to go back to the way it was. It, 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 this is a challenging time for everybody in that part of the world. No, it is. And I don't think that there's any magic cure. But uh, I think without the involvement of the United States, uh, I think we sort of know, you know, it's going to get even worse. You know, one thing it does expose is that that much ballyhooed Trump, uh, Kushner, Abraham Accords, it basically said, hey, we'll get those some of those other Arab dictators to recognize Israel because no one cares anymore about the Palestinians. Uh, well, unfortunately uh, for them, uh, that's not the case. So we've seen, uh, you know, how flawed that was. And all you have to do is look. I guess it's not so much the Arab streets these days, James. It's Arab. It's, it's social media. It is on fire, and uh, that it does not make the situation any easier. No, and, and you know, the, the, everybody, there's a lot of blame to go around, but it is understand that they were evicting six families in East Jerusalem. That was a kind of spark that, that led to this. And, you know, the aggressive nature of the policy over the years to expand these settlements, you, you're just almost asking for trouble. And I hope that when they get a ceasefire, and I hope that people just rethink basically how how, how they're doing this, because right now it, it, it's not it's it, it's a it's a situation that could get better, but it, I, it also get might get better next month and get worse next year. I don't know. Well, some people, when they think about those settlements, James, they think, well, maybe it's a block here or there and, you know, um, a couple hundred people. You know, a friend of ours told us the other day that uh, some of those settlements are as large as 100,000 people. The, the, you know, this is not just reclaiming, uh, you know, a block or two. And it is impossible to envision any kind 
of 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 long term ceasefires, resolution, whatever right. one calls it, without dealing with a settlements issue. And that's because, not going to happen as long as Netanyahu is there. This fall, when you're watching a University of Michigan college game on television, it, it, when it, it, the big house is full, right. that's how many people are in the settlements. That's right. about right on the number. Right. I, 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 I don't know what town. I'll find a town. Greensboro, North Carolina or something is, uh, is uh, you know, about the size of it. You know, one of the things that sent me up the wall, though, was predictable. Mike Pence wrote the other day, you know why this happened, James? Mike Pence says, this is going to shock you, that it's all the fault of Biden's weakness compared to Trump. This is Mike Pence's attempt to get back in the good graces of Trump world. I got a memo I'm going to send to the VP. Two things. Number one, you'll never get back in with Trump. Loyalty is a four-letter word for the Donald, as Jeff Sessions. And number two, if you think this is all due to what Biden has done in the last four months, just read a little history of the region. You'll find out maybe, Mike, it's a little more complicated than that. Yeah, I we have a we try to talk about things that are relevant on this show, and I don't think Mike Pence meets that standard. I mean, oh, except he's, he's echoing a line we'll hear a lot. He what? He's echoing a line we're going to hear a lot. It's all Biden's weakness. Right, right, right. but uh, of course it is, and and uh, can't do anything about that. They, when Obama came in, they criticized him for putting mustard on his hamburger. All right, so yes, this is it, but. Mike Pence is in the dustbin of political history. He's he's going nowhere. They don't the, the Trump people don't want him, and the anti-Trump people can't stand him. So other than that, he's doing fine. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, he's not a tower of strength, but uh, anyway, uh, it's a terrible situation. Let's hope something happens this week. I do think that they ought to name an ambassador. The Trump ambassador was terrible. Uh, and uh, they ought to name an ambassador over there. I don't think that's a solution to anything, but I think it helps. I think people like Martin Indig were helpful over there to an extent. Maybe the confirmation process would take a while because the Republicans will try to make a big issue of it. But, uh, you know, that's one thing that they can do. Um, James, uh, let's turn now to what I think we can rightfully say is that the cuffs may be closing in on the Donald. The New York Attorney General, as you know, has joined the U.S. Attorney in the criminal investigation of Trump in New York. There are reports that they're getting close, that they may have some Trump insiders, certainly who they're talking to. We don't know what they're going to say. And as you know, because you, you have reported this, the Fulton County investigators are ratcheting up their probe into the efforts, uh, the efforts to manipulate the Georgia results. You know, I can see why Trump doesn't want a January 6th commission, which might expose him to more culpability, though the bigger worry could be the Justice Department. But uh, Donald Trump is going to need lots of criminal legal counsel. And my advice to every one of them, get paid up front. <laughs> well, first of all, you're, you're exactly right about the Fulton County DA, and I think I think news will be coming out of there about the scope and the people that are going to be involved in determining if there's criminal uh, liability here. Uh, they're putting, I think they're going to put together a, a, a really top-notch team here. Um, <laughs> you know, he, t yeah, it, it, wait, I want to know how much he paid Rudy. I bet, you, I bet you Trump hasn't paid Rudy a single solitary penny. And then Rudy wanting to send a bill for $20,000. I mean, it, it, this is so, it's so clownish. That if it, you just can't help but laugh. I know it's serious subject matter. I know people are criminals. I know they're, they're terrible people. But it, it's such a, such, they're such clowns. You, you just got to smirk. It, it, it's so funny. But Rudy Giuliani is, is he's actually a, a, a hilarious man. He is. You know, I remember back in the Nixon days, you thought, boy, what a clown show this with Tony Yulasiewicz and some of those other really nutty people, the Cubans who broke into the Watergate. I mean, I, they 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 really uh, they they look like model citizens compared to this crowd. I mean, it's hard to tell younger people, James, that at one point Rudy Giuliani was called with some justification America's mayor was the leading candidate for the Republican nomination at one point. He is, he has, he's a joke. He's a, a late night punchline now. He said the other day that they're treating me like a, you know, the prosecutors are treating me like 
uh, a mob boss. I mean, the mob may resent that. They, they, they may. But it's, uh, he's tucking his shirt in. I mean, these guys got it, – it's amazing – the the lack of any self-worth that these people have, their ability to, they almost, they want to go out and see how big a fool they can make of themselves. What was the name of the company, Fraud Guaranteed? Yeah, yeah. They actually yeah. hired a company named Fraud Guaranteed. Right. And they got to tell you what, they delivered on their promise. I, I mean, you just, it, 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 the Four Seasons press conference, one of the, most hilarious events in modern American history of any kind. I would just point out it was the Four, four Seasons landscaping, a dumpy yeah. building in Philadelphia. Not, it, was, not, it was next to like a, a, a dildo store. A dildo, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> oh, no. It couldn't, I mean, again, it, the, the, and then the idiot kid is going to run for governor. Like, it, like he's going to get any votes. I mean, it's it. it I, I I I I just you know we'll we'll talk about it more. The people's lack of just being embarrassed. I mean, I've done stuff in my life. I mean, a lot of stuff embarrassed my kids. I've probably done some things to embarrass myself, but at least I was aware of it. I mean, these clowns just keep going, and I, and I think Trump demands it. I, I think that's the price of being around him is you, you have to make a complete fool of yourself to prove that you're loyal to it. Yeah, because, you know, the uh, uh, the fish rots from the top. Uh, you know, if politicians, the political candidacies were like like markets where you can go and you can buy a futures that a stock is going to go down, it's going to drop precipitously, right? And I, I've never done that because I'm not smart enough to figure out which ones would drop or which ones wouldn't. But if, if, if you could do that, I'd buy the Andrew Cuomo stock so big right now. I mean, can you imagine him running for government of New York? He went, when he didn't make the Duke golf team, they tried to sue Duke for not making the team. What? <laughs> There's a site called Predicted, and, and I guarantee you there'd be odds on that. You, you can't, and, if, and anybody can. It's a, it's a betting site that, that you can bet on, and most of the things are like political. I think there's a $800 limit, so you can't lose everything. But I, I, I would put up anything that, that, that uh, Andrew Giuliani or whatever his name is is not going to be the next governor. <laughs> So what do you think that Donald is doing right down right now in Mar-a-Lago? Just try to picture Trump down there right now. Well, he's, you know, hanging around the lobby and he's talking to lawyers a lot. I guarantee you 60 percent of his day is consumed with talking to lawyers. And he's, you know, trying to get people to hold tight. And I'm sure that Don Jr. and Eric, you know, uh, are having great difficulty sleeping at night. And I, I think the guy is just trying to hold everybody together and talk to his lawyers, and he's getting ready to go to New Jersey uh, to spend the summer. He may not be able to, he, he may be in an orange job. My prediction is this. He will be arraigned before he returns to Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, and I for a while there were stories that he, he might not go to New Jersey because he didn't want to be extradited to New York. But the Palm Beach prosecutor said the governor of Florida has no control over whether he's extradited in New York or not. That's the control of the local authorities. If that's the case, it wouldn't matter because uh, he will have to be extradited if they, uh, if they indict him. James, I think you're right. That's what he's doing. I think the other 40% of the time, other than greeting people who tell him how great he is, he's talking to those simpering sycophants he has around him who tell him how great he is. He controls the party. They're all afraid of you. Uh, you know, you make sure that McCarthy and McConnell and the others don't don't uh, capitulate to anything, uh, and that uh, you know that keeps him going. There is an element of truth to that, as far as the party's concerned. Yeah, yeah. That that look it is not a party. It, it, people say, "Can you believe like Mitch McConnell is now against the January Sixth Commission?" Or people get they get mad at Kevin McCarthy. What a what a hypocrite! This is what he said. Blah blah. They do not, they cannot, they don't belong to a political party. They belong to a personality cult. And anybody that wants any position in a Republican Party has to be a member of the personality cult. They would have voted Mitch McConnell out of being majority leader. They would have voted Kevin McCarthy out. Look what they did. To, if, if, if there was any proof that it is not a political party, they ceremoniously dumped Liz Cheney and put this Stefanik creature 
as, 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 as the state. That, that is, that they're not even comparable if it comes to what you would call the ideological filament of the Republican Party. It, it is not a party. It, we should not be disappointed when, when people do exactly the predictable thing. I don't want to tease. I don't want to tease what we're going to offer our listeners later. But Elise Stefanik, uh, James, did go to Harvard, and I know that would impress you. Uh, but uh, that's that's that that's her credential, right? No. Right. Well, we'll talk about this a little bit. Later, right. A little this, bit later. This segment is is really worth uh, worth worth uh, paying attention to. It is. It clearly is. Hey, James. Let's talk again about an ultimate life hack that you and I really appreciate for understanding things quickly. It's an incredible app called Blinkist that takes the best key takeaways for busy people like you, James Carville, collecting them from thousands of nonfiction books and condensing them down to just 15 minutes. You can listen to them anytime, anywhere. There's everything from self-help to business, health and history, along with the latest titles from the bestsellers and the classic nonfiction titles you always meant to read but never had time to. Yeah, I, I would love to interview them to find out, because whoever distills these things is some kind of a, a, a genius, because they could really, and some of the things where you know, maybe books you read and you read their, their description, and you go, gee, I wish I'd have just read this and not gone to the trouble to read the whole damn thing. You know, I could have read right. more. But what's really good is that it, I don't I don't know how they do this, or, you know, and, and do it on that kind of level and, and that many books. But I, I, every experience that I've had, which has been numerous with this outfit, has always been extraordinarily positive. I've always learned a lot. And I've always in amazement at that, that, that just in law school, we used to call them poop sheets, you know, and it would take all the complexity and kind of break it yeah. down for you. But of course, the law professors would scream at you not to read them, and we had a, a thing. The more, the more that the law professors said, "Don't read this," the better it was. Professors never like that or cliff notes, that's for sure. But uh, no. when you get to be our age, you really appreciate it. But you don't yeah, have to yeah. be our age. <laughs> there are a lot of busy people in their thirties and forties who can use this. The, the she or he or whoever it is that did this, they know what the hell yeah. they're doing. I mean, the stuff that they pull out is... is, is well, with Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to, to, really, as you say, James, a massive library of condensed nonfiction books. All the books you want, all for one low price. And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for you all out there listening to this program. Go to Blinkist.com slash War Room to try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash War Room to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash War Room. You also can look for the link in our show notes. Hey, James, our guest for a return visit is Julian Zelizer, the distinguished Princeton professor and author of numerous books, most recently on Newt Gingrich and the rise of the new Republicans. He is an expert on today's GOP, such as it is. Julian, welcome. Uh, let me just start. House Republicans, uh, vast majority of them opposing an independent investigation into the deadly mob assault on the Capitol. What does that tell us about today's Republican Party? Well, I think it says uh, two things. One, I'm sure some of them are nervous about a commission investigation, given they had participants in the party uh, in stoking the entire event. So it's somewhat predictable. And two, this and the allegations about a fraudulent, fraudulent election are pretty central to the narrative of all Republicans. And uh, the only question is why there are continued uh, stories and speculation about Will this cause a great rift in the party or would McConnell or, uh, or Congressman McCarthy go along with this? I think it's pretty clear where they are. And um, this is the outcome of a party that's all in with Trumpism. Yeah, yeah, it really is. I was going to say, how, how much of all of this is Trump related? You know, you wrote about Newt Gingrich and what he did. And a lot of this seems to be a natural sequel to that. But, you know, the one thing I think it's interesting, Julian, I want to get your take on I did a column a couple of weeks ago. The one thing that's gone 
This is no longer the party of Ronald Reagan. I mean, the Democrats may at least in part be the party of FDR, but Reaganism died with Donald Trump. Well, that's true. Uh, I mean, I think there's certain elements uh, that uh, Reagan put into motion or that era of Republicans put into motion, which are actually part of of what's what's happening. But certainly in, in terms of coherent ideas, in terms of uh, Reagan's aspiration, whether you liked him or disliked him, to build a, a coalition that was broad and that was somehow comparable uh, to what FDR and the New Deal had done, that's gone. This is a party now that's all in on uh, a very narrow part of the electorate, not trying to create a broad coalition and not using big ideas, but using disinformation as the major currency uh, of politics. I mean, it's swapped out tax cuts and anti-communism for voter fraud allegations and conspiracy theory. And that's a big sea change. Yeah, it sure is. You know, Liz Cheney, um, I disagree with her on most everything, but I admire her stance. And she says she wants to stop the Republican Party from Trump's domination. She's tilting at windmills, isn't she? Well, I think her fate uh, reflects where she stands in the party. It was pretty quick. They dismissed her and, and booted her out of her position very quickly, uh, all for saying that the election was legitimate. It was an incredibly um, inconsequential statement if you were really looking at this in perspective. And this is coming from someone who's very far to the right uh, and who's actually been engaged in some of the kinds of politics that the Tea Party likes. And yet she went too far by going against the president. So I don't really see how Liz Cheney does this. Uh, I don't see how she changes the party. She's an outlier right now. And I'm not one who thinks a third party is, is likely going to be on the way. So, so uh, I see what she's doing, but I don't really see how she plans to get there. James. So, so Julian, I, 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 I just dispute the nomenclature of calling the Republicans a party. It is not a it is a personality cult, and it behaves as a personality cult would behave. It's all it, seventy five percent is built around a personality, and I, in a sense that I think about a political party that it's expansive, it builds on coalitions, it tries to expand itself. It doesn't even today's so called Republican Party does not even meet the definition of a political party. Uh, look, I think uh, it's a it's a fair point, certainly from someone who's been involved in party building, but it still has the organizational apparatus of a party, which gives it a lot of muscle, meaning uh, the, the money that the party depends on, uh, the organizational structure that gets out the vote, uh, and the connection between the congressional wing of the party and the cult, which I, I assume we're talking about the former president, uh, is is pretty strong. So... I think there's more there, and it, it might not be the kind of party we traditionally think of. It might not be the kind of party many Americans like, uh, but I think that's part of what gave the former president and still gives him his strength. He's situated in this big apparatus, which has a lot of money, muscle, and votes. But all the apparatus does is bend to his will. Mm-hmm. And and he and the and there there are some disputes over who gets to raise money and who keeps whatever money and there's real disputes as to how much money Trump's keeping for himself. So let let's assume that something happens. That, I don't know. Trump decides that he just retired from American politics. He's he's going to an island in the middle of the South Pacific and the the. Manhattan DA and the Fulton County DA and the York Attorney General and the Justice Department everybody says, okay, you can go there and live years, years out. What, what do you think would happen to the Republican Party? So, so here we go. Trump's removed. He's off somewhere in la-la land, Shangri-La. What, what happens next? Or Mar-a-Lago. Um, I, I think the ideas of the party wouldn't change so much. Maybe uh, we see it differently. I think you'd have new versions of Trumpism, maybe Senator Hawley or maybe Senator Cruz, who on, on policies, whether it's restrictionism with immigration, uh, whether it's voting restrictions, they're all very much aligned with this. And many of them were before Trump announced in 2015. I mean, this was what the Tea Party was fighting for when they stormed Washington in 2010 and 2011. So I don't know if the party changes. It's not going to reverse itself on immigration. It's not going to reverse itself 
itself uh, on most key economic policies and voting restrictions. Boy, you know, the party has been fighting for this since the early 2010s and, and accelerated it after Shelby v. Holder. So you can take Trump out and still have a party that looks the same and it'll be vying for who takes over. Yeah, I th- I honestly, just my own opinion is it would become crazier because they would have to uh, they, they would get into an auction. All right. And then it would have mandatory guns and coffins. All right. If you're not for that, you're for gun control. I'm serious. It, 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 Trump is, it w- would be a moderate version of Trumpism compared to what's going to happen when he leaves. They're not going to all hit themselves in the head. So, gee, we're over that. Now let's just go back to talking about tax cuts and national I, security. I think that's fair. I think he unleashed uh, or accelerated elements of the party. And once he's gone, it's not as if they then are curbed. They actually continue and they want to double down. Uh, I think the incentive into 2024, if he's not running, will be to show they can do it in even more aggressive fashion. And they can say whatever they want. And uh, they could engage in Trumpian politics, so to speak, in a way he never could. So I think you're probably right. Um, and, and that's the dynamic of, of, of how politics often works. Especially because he did well enough in 2020 um, that I just think a lot of Republican candidates are not thinking, oh, my gosh, we have to totally reverse what we're doing or we have to have some soul searching moment. They're just trying to figure out how to do this even better. Julian, I I 99 percent agree with you. I think the one thing I thought the Tea Party people in the main were nuttier than a fruitcake. But I think the one thing that was kind of consistent was that they were for less government, uh, uh, no regulation, uh, you know, uh, do something about entitlements. Trump didn't give a shit about any of that. I mean, he really didn't. And uh, so he he really changed whatever, as nutty as I thought it was, coherent anti-government policy they had, too. Now, maybe they'll go back to that, although I think they look pretty hypocritical when they do that now. Yeah, I mean, they weren't totally consistent on that. Uh, And some of that was about Obama being the president uh, as opposed to uh, Mitt Romney or or take your pick with Republicans. And certainly during uh, the Trump era, a lot of those same Tea Party members weren't so consistent. It was use government in certain. It was about priorities rather than pro or anti-government. And so I don't know how much of a reversal there will be. I'm expecting to hear a more strengthened and vigorous opposition to Biden and some of what Biden is doing if Republicans can get themselves out of this mode they're in where they're focused. In some ways, they're helping Biden because they're so focused on these other questions of, of voter fraud or, you know, Congressman Gates and what to do about that. They don't, they're not even paying attention to the big story in Washington. But uh, I'm not sure how consistent this party is going to be. And I think in some ways Trump exposed rather than changed them. So I was teaching at Tulane when it arrived at the Tea Party, and I brought a lot of Tea Party people to explain. And almost to a person, what, what they would say is it's the debt that, what we're saying is, is right. the debt that we're incurring is unsustainable, and we really, you know, race is not important to this, but it's all about the debt. And, and of course, Trump came in and exploded the deficit, and there wasn't a word in opposition. I mean, I think the Tea Party intellectually is one of the great frauds in, in the history of the United States. I mean, but to be, to be fair, and I, I don't know how uh, what you two think on this, it's, it's not a new story in Republican politics. Uh, you know, each, each cycle of Republican politics is centered on election demands to reduce the def- deficit and debt, and then it goes up, and there's Republican support. And this was a story with Reagan. It was a story, uh, the only maybe exception would be uh, George H.W. Bush, uh, who at least kind of went in 1990 for a deficit reduction package. Uh, George, his son, increased it. And so I think in that way, uh, that hypocrisy or whatever you want to call it is essential to conservative politics in the last three, four decades. Right. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I every, we're so accustomed to it happening with Republican politicians that people don't take, hardly take note anymore. I guess my point was, is they claim to be that that was their motivation for existence, which is this, this horrible, gut-wrenching debt that we were faced with. And, and 
it, it was sort of unusual for a group. I mean, we have the what's the name Meyer that runs the the anti deficit, the, the Pete Peterson kind of stuff, you know. And, and they they try to be consistent, and I, I think to some extent they are. But but these people they just they didn't care about the one issue they said they cared. It, it would be like the pro life people, right? They're, they're pro life people are consistent. The, right. the, the anti deficit people, there's no consistency there at all. No, I, I think that's a good comparison, by the way, just to really, uh, you know, you can't imagine uh, uh, activists who are against reproductive rights all of a sudden flipping. Um, but that's exactly what you have with the, the debt and deficit issue. Correct. Correct. You're going to see a whole bunch of born-again virgin deficit uh, hawks uh, now in the, next, uh, in the next couple of months. Julian, here's one thing that perplexes, I think, both of us. Um, the, Democ- the, the, the Democrats have their left wing, their fringe group. It's much smaller. It's much more benign than the crazy Republicans. That's a, it's a huge force in the GOP. But the Democrats seem to pay more of a price, defund the police and all that. The Marjorie Green, the real crazies, of which there are more than there are dozens and dozens, they don't seem to have hurt other Republicans. I mean, first of all, is that right? And if so, why? And, could, and will it change? They're two very different parties, and that's what a lot of social scientists say. And you can't just talk about polarization. You have to talk about different types of polarization. And the Republican Party has become, as a whole, much more extreme, not just in ideas, but in terms of tactics and its willingness um, either to be, you know, totally flip on issues uh, or to kind of let all guardrails down. And, and when you have a party like that, there's just more room for someone like a, a Congresswoman Green. And, and nothing really happens when someone does that or a President Trump. The Democrats are still more conservative, not in terms of ideas, but in terms of their approach to governing and politics. And I also think it's just a, a much more divided party where the divisions play out, um, but there's kind of a mechanism to control some of the extremes. I don't think any of that exists in the Republican Party anymore, and that's a big difference. And that's why it's almost impossible to negotiate. You can't really have bipartisan negotiation uh, when one party is in the place where the GOP has landed. And, and so the cost for Democrats is they pay more of a price. They're unwilling to go as far often as Republicans are. Uh, they're more bound by traditional processes of governance and ideas of truth and fact. So, so Julian, you hear a lot is, look, okay, 70% of Republicans think the election was stolen. There's something, you know, maybe we should address this and, you know, try to get people. Like 70% of Republicans think the earth is 5,000 years old. Is Princeton going to stop teaching biology because 70% of the Republicans think the earth? I mean, at some point, and I don't know what percent of the country it is, maybe it's a total of 35, we just have to say fuck them. No matter how we talk to them, no matter how many focus groups we do, no matter how many academic papers come out is, is the right way to do it. They, they, I'm not saying they're stupid. I'm saying worse than that, they choose to be stupid. They have made a life choice. And, and we keep thinking, and I keep reading pieces in the Atlantic and the New Yorker and places about the proper way to talk to There's no sense in me talking to my brother-in-law. I mean, I'd be nice to him or anything, but, but, but if you believe if you believe in QAnon, I, I, I can't do anything for you, man. I, I hope you don't get sick. I hope you get, you know, Social Security and Medicare. But 70% of the Republican Party can't run the country. I, I agree. Um, and, and I think this is a problem that certainly plays out in Washington, and, and it probably reflects some of why there's limits to what President Biden is willing to do at this point. Uh, in terms of negotiation, but a much broader level, it's a fundamental problem. It's not as if you're going to persuade 70% of a party that believes this was a stolen election when there's no evidence for that to all of a sudden think in a different way. And I think that extends to a number of questions. And that's why there's some skepticism about right now, uh, the emphasis on bipartisanship or the articles you're referring to that talk about the need to better understand 
uh, people who have entered a space of, of falsehood and, and conspiracy and disbelief. I'm not sure the best use of our political energy, which is limited, especially in times of multiple crises, is reaching out uh, to a group that doesn't want to be brought in and that doesn't believe the same set of facts. Look, in the 60s, there was a vigorous, heated and divisive debate over Vietnam. Should we be in Vietnam or should we take troops out of Vietnam? Today, the debate would be half the country saying we're not even there, even as there are ground troops right uh, in combat. And and it's too hard to have a, a legitimate debate that way. I, I agree. I, would, I mean, I, it, it, they got. It, I don't think it's half, but it's 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 a it's a whole lot of it's a whole lot of people. That they just don't want to get better, and, and I, I think that they're right. Biden, maybe just talk bipartisanship, and then at some point you say, "Well, we we tried everything we could, and this is a document of what we did." And you know, it takes two people to play, you know, to play a pickup, you know, pickup basketball game, and we, we just got to play this one by ourselves. Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, the one place that you have to make exception, Julian, I think you would agree, is the vaccines. Uh, you got to do whatever you can to get that, that that crazy group. It's not. What do you have? You had a chance to read up, or do you know Elise Stefanik? She. What's your take on her? I think it's it's the same story. Uh, certainly, initial speculation and coverage that here's a different kind of Republican, but uh, it turns out it looks she's very aligned with with where the party is, and and if she does. Uh, what's necessary to to keep her seat, keep her position. I don't think you're going to see any utterances from her that sound anything like what Liz Cheney uh, said. And I expect her to be a, a loyal foot soldier in in this party. And and that's my take on her. Principle won't get in the way. Just finally, nope. um, uh, for me at least, James may have another one. Is there any? Do you see anything down the horizon to cleanse the party of this? No, not right now. I mean, the, I said before the election that the only thing I, I could imagine is just utterly disastrous election performances, not once, but over several cycles, something that would create the shock and awe that 1964 did uh, for with Barry Goldwater, um, although that was only temporary. But uh, the idea that that same partisan interest, that same drive for power that motivates the party so strongly right now ultimately um, says that this kind of politics doesn't work for us, even if they have no moral objection to it. But we're not there. We're not anywhere close. So I don't see uh, in the next few election cycles anything changing where the party is. And they're probably going to do well in the midterms, the GOP. So it'll only increase the incentives to continue along this path. So, so uh, Professor, if, if Newt Gingrich said, I have played a significant part in the development of the modern Republican Party and where it stands today. And the Washington Post called you on a fact check. Would there be a lot of validity for Newt's taking credit for a lot of what's happening in the Republican Party today? Oh, for Can sure. Can we give him credit for that? hundred percent. I don't know if it's in the way he would intend, but uh, he, he created <laughs> a lot of the playbook. He created uh, this this mentality about politics. And so you would have to give him a you know, thumbs up for that fact check. All right. Well, it was great talking to you. And tell everybody in the faculty lounge in Princeton, hello from me. <laughs> I will. And we'll, say it, we'll say it in very simple language. <laughs> <laughs> Julian Zelazar, you're a great guest. Uh, we're going to have you back again. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, guys. Bye-bye. Yeah, you bet. Now we want to take a minute to tell you about a delicious meal service that's taken over our kitchens. With HelloFresh, you get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. It makes home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. And thanks to HelloFresh, eating healthier has never been easier with low-cal, carb-smart, vegetarian options every week. HelloFresh offers 25-plus recipes to choose from weekly, from vegetarian meals to craft burgers and extra-special gourmet options, all packed with fresh produce directly from farmers. They even have meals ready in under 20 minutes so you can stay on the move. The best part is every recipe is designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. Your whole family's going to love it. James, you love it. Yeah, I do. And this stuff is, this is a lot of the wave of the future here. 
And, and what they, they got perfect, I mean, they a nutritional balance in it. And, and again, I go back to the, the, the stuff is good. I mean, it tastes good. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very much a, a, a food snob, you know, like you call this food and, and it, that they really, they real, real extract, it has real taste to it. You're giving up nothing in terms of the taste profile and you're getting a lot in terms of the nutritional profile. And I think that's what people are really looking for because a lot of people just don't want to give up taste, you know, just for the sake of good nutrition. And this does not make you, this allows you to have your cake and eat it too, if you will. Go to hellofresh.com slash warroom, one, two, and use code warroom, one, two, for 12 free meals, including free shipping. For America's number one meal kit, remember, go to hellofresh.com slash warroom12 and use code warroom12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. We also include the link in our show notes. Hey, James, here goes the segment we love, questions uh, from our listeners, which are always good. Answers from us, which we hope are good. But they keep coming in more every week from all over, not only the United States, but all, all over the world. And the first, there, there are two questions that are almost the same. One is, boy, if I get this name wrong, I'm going to apologize ahead of time. But from Perth, Australia. Perth, Australia, we have, I think it's Sabaccio. But if I messed your name up, let me know and I'll get it right the next time. And he and Mike in Albuquerque both, in essence, want to know, there's talk of a lot of prominent Republicans breaking away to form a third party. Uh, and it, even with the threat of a GOP-led anti-democratic voting bills and the specter of gerrymandering, gerrymandering isn't gaining seats in the House and Senate for the Dems possible if all this friction continues? Well, you know, but first of all, from, from the Rocky Mountains to the Indian Ocean, oh, man. politics 2020 forum spans the globe. I just hope I got his name right, because that would really embarrass me if I didn't. Anyway, go ahead. So what's the central question here? Well, the central question is, are the Republicans so screwed up? Are there going to be a, a, a breakaway group of prominent moderate conservatives? And are they going to get in kind of trouble? And that maybe give the Democrats great openings. I think it's a it's, it's a wish. So the breakaway group now is led by Miles Taylor. Raise your right hand if you know who Miles Taylor is. All right. There, there are no, to my knowledge, there are no elected Republicans in a position of power that have very much to say about any of this. So, yes, the, you know, Miles Taylor and Bill Kristol and Rick Wilson and, you know, Stuart Stevens and, and people like that, they, you know, even Mona Sherrod, but they don't have to face Republican voters because if you face Republican voters, you will lose, all right? And and that's good. We have, you know, patriotic people that are putting country above party or ideology that are standing up for democracy. They're just so damn few that are in public office. And that's why, that, that's why they're not leaving a political party. They're leaving a personality cult. There is no Republican Party. There is only the personality of Donald Trump. I, I, I can't emphasize that enough. And, and I've got to apologize to our questioner. It's actually Marty, who is from, again, this I may get wrong, Sabaccio, Perth, Australia. Now, does anybody know what Sabaccio, Perth is? I don't. Let's just say Marty from Perth, Australia. It's a good question, Marty. Uh, we have Tom from Manishaw, Wisconsin, who says Republicans are never going to compromise on S1. I agree. Does that mean that Joe Manchin... Uh, is holding back or eliminating the filibuster. What will it take to change it? Again, we've talked about this before, Tom. They are not going to eliminate the filibuster. That is a non-starter. It is not going to happen, number one. Number two, they will not pass that crucial, critical, most important of all pieces of legislation, S-1, on, by getting any Republican votes. So the only possible solution 
is for Joe Biden and Joe Manchin to agree to a one-time, whatever one calls it, carve-out. It's been done before. McConnell did it for Supreme Court nominees. Harry Reid did it for appellate court nominees. Don't, don't know that it's going to happen. But, Tom, that's the only, only possible way out of this. I concur. And let's hope. Um, James, uh, we have Corey in Hershey, Pennsylvania, who wants to know, do you support term limits for Congress for the House and the Senate? No. And everybody of my generation that lives in Hershey claims they went to the game. Well, Chapman scored 100 points. Oh, I, I listened to it on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, God, I love I love, I love Hershey. I've been there many times because I work with Governor Casey and the, the, the Inn and the Lodge and uh, uh, Jim Brown, who's a good friend of mine, is on the, the Hershey Board of Directors. And so uh, you, you live in a, in a great place. But, uh, you know, what, what yeah. was the question? <laughs> well, it was your favorite term limits. We have, oh, we have okay, term okay, limits. Right, it's called right, elections. Right, right. I got, so I got rather than w- wasting your time on, on lobbying for something that's not going to happen, like term limits, Republicans were all for term limits. I mean, you know, the colonists and all the top Republicans and Newt Gingrich until they got in the majority. And then all, all of a sudden, they think term limits were so good. You know, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not for term limits. Yeah. Uh, we, we have a good question here from Patrick in Eugene, Oregon. He says, after 30 years of gathering strength and taking over the party and the Supreme Court, do you think those right-wingers, libertarians, billionaires, whoever they are now, will try to pursue a complete takeover and institute a constitutional convention? That's not as remote a possibility as people think. Uh, I haven't looked it up lately, but they're only, you know, three, four, five states away from being able to call a convention. Now, there are lots of legal issues as Congress have to go back and do it again. But all I can say is that a constitutional convention today would be a disaster. Yeah. First of all, I'm going to try to come out to Eugene for the NCAA track uh, finals. It's a good chance that LSU is going to pull off a, a, a dual victory here to win the NCAA men's and women's. It's, it's, it's a possibility. And I've always wanted to go to Haywood Field. And one of, it's one of my venues that I haven't visited that I, I, I really, really want to visit. We can't pass gas in a Congress. How are we going to pass constitutional amendments? I, I mean, until the country, as long as 40 percent, 38 percent of this country is insane, we're, 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 in a, we're not in a good position. So and what are we, what's the Constitutional Convention going to do? Would we repeal the 14th Amendment? Well, I think that's not the only one that would be in right. danger. Yeah. Uh, the 16th? You know, how you about know? the first? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean oh, it's, uh, yeah. Uh, it's not, you know, it, it would be dangerous. Hope it's not going to happen. But again, it's not remote. They're only, you know, three, four, five states away. James, um, this, is, um, this is really a good long-term question. Mike, in Brunswick, Australia, you know, we're doing pretty well down under today who talks about Republicans are backing Trump's big lie. How about if they do take the House in 2022 and the Senate? Uh, what are the concerns for Republican House ratifying the 2024 presidential election? I think what Mike is saying, Biden wins re-election or Harris wins or a Democrat wins, is something comparable to this time, but the Republicans control the Congress. I, they, they would go in lockstep with Trump? Yeah. I, I mean, it's some, they would have to, to be fair... You know, at, at least in, in, in some of this, some voted to uh, impeach him. Not very many. Not very many. So it would depend by how much they carried it, because they'd probably lose maybe two or three. Let's just assume they have 227 Republican members uh, in, in 2024. They, that would be a sufficient majority. But if they have 222, they're not, they might not be able to pull it off. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. But... Uh... It's something you don't dismiss, uh, given what they've done in the, in, the, in the House now. Troy from Laurel, Maryland says, why don't the Democrats push the idea Republicans want the poor and middle class to pay for infrastructure instead of corporations or the wealthy? I mean, you're dead on right, Troy. That's exactly what the argument is over. I mean, McConnell and others are saying, let's do an excise tax. Well, there are ways to make an excise tax less regressive, but basically it does affect uh, the poor more. I, I would be for raising the gasoline tax with rebates. But the idea of an ambitious 
infrastructure plan financed by taxes on corporations and the wealthy, at least in part, is to me a winning political argument. And I don't I, I hope the Democrats will make that case stronger, more strongly. Yeah, he did. I, I've been there. Laurel went to the racetrack there. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it's popular. People like the idea. And they're talking about a tax increase of households at more than $400,000 worth of income. In the metropolitan Washington area, which is a very prosperous metropolitan area, only 4% of the households earn more than $400,000. The other thing, if, if you earn $500,000, you're only paying the stepped-up increase on $100,000 worth of your income. So I, 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 and we got a, inequality is a horrible, horrible gut-wrenching problem in the United States, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure the Democrats can pass this. Because these rich people are going to fight like hell. I mean, like, 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 like crazy. And, and they're going to put out, if you tax 4% of the households in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, you're going to cause a massive recession, a depression. I mean, it's, it's asinine. It's stupid. This is like one of the smart things this country could do is have really wealthy people pay for infrastructure that ordinary people use. I, I, this, this is the best idea I can imagine. Amen and memo to the Washington Post, New York Times, and Wall Street Journal. Have a reporter who just covers those K Street lobbyists and those big interests trying to stop this. And be doing this, identify them. Let us know who they are, how much money they're giving, what arrangements they're making, because that's what's going on right now. And they're Democrats as well as Republicans on K Street. So I would hope that, uh, that they would um, uh, be in the glare of sunlight. It would, uh, it would help them all. Uh, James, uh, you know, we got a bunch more here. There's, there's, there's one I want to find that is, oh, this is, you'll love this. And, and you, you can hear him right now. This is John in Griffin, Georgia. He said, I've been a Republican my whole life, but after the Trump, January, Liz Cheney, I just couldn't effing do it anymore. Some bitches are nuttier than a porta potty at a peanut festival. I want to, I'm, I'm, I went independent, the second impeachment. Now I want to be a Democrat. I'm pissed. I'm motivated. How do I become a Southern Democrat? Is there room for a moderate neocon in that party now? Man, there's just room for anybody in our party. Remember, unlike your former party, we're a party of coalitions. And I, my view is we always should expand the coalition to as many people as they can. So from one Southern Democrat to apparently a soon-to-be Southern Democrat, welcome to the party. Right. <laughs> if you got any more, you know, we're not a very exclusive club here, dude. <laughs> the more they come in, the better. John, I got to tell you, any guy who talk about some bitches are nuttier than a porta potty at a peanut festival, that Democratic Party needs you, John. Join today. <laughs> Uh, James, we got one more, which I think you may not mind uh, if I can find it here. Uh, this is from Dave in San Diego. What do you think of the LSU Tigers' new lady hoops coach? She had some interesting opinions on the virus. Uh, well, first of all, I'm crazy about the heart. And based on the fact that she's won three national championships at Baylor, and she was a great player. She played at Louisiana Tech. She's from Tickfall, Louisiana, which is uh, well, uh, maybe two miles from, you know, very far from where Governor John Bell Edwards grew up. Uh, so she's, she's Louisiana through and through. And I, I saw an excerpt in that. Actually, you saw the whole thing. Yeah. Her speech at the Basketball Hall of Fame it was quite remarkable. She knows how to win, and that's, that's, what, we, that's what we need. We've got to know how to win. So I'm very excited about Coach Mulkey coming here. I, I really followed her son. He was a shortstop and a good one for the LSU baseball team for, for a couple, three years. Was she great. was great at that Hall of Fame, James. First of all, she, she was presented by Michael Jordan. Uh, which it is helps. not a a, nad, a a bad presenter, and she she later in her speech talked about her son who's in the St. Louis Cardinals organization, and she basically said if they don't have the sense to bring him up, Magic Johnson sitting out there with the L.A. Dodgers, <laughs> would you trade for him right away? She was impressive there. Someone said she had some right wing views. I hope not because she's a good coach. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, yeah, don't give it up. Yeah, I'd, I'd rather win a national championship with someone that has right wing views than lose you know finish last if someone has views that are more politically aligned with me but but spoken I, I, spoken I, like a true sports fan absolutely hey 
Hey, James, this is really exciting. This is a momentous event for War Room. We're starting today a new periodic outrage segment. It's called the Ivy League Sphincter Hall of Fame. Now, the requisites are simple. A candidate must be a graduate of an Ivy League school. They have to be involved in politics or public life. And they have to be more than just a jerk. They have to attain a high level of obnoxiousness. It's limited to the Ivy League because still too often elites associate that with unequaled talent. Now, I teach in an Ivy League school, which I love, uh, as I do a number of dear friends who are alums of the Elite Eight, but they're exceptions. Candidates for our Hall of Fame, and like baseball in 1936, will have five initial inductees. James, there's a lot of suspense now. Tell us who, tell us the first class of Ivy League Sphincter Hall of Famers. Uh, drum roll, please. All right. The first member of the Sphincter Hall of Fame, or as I call it, the Hall of Flatulence, is none other than Donald J. Trump. I, I really don't think that that requires a whole lot of reasoning behind it. The second is, and, and I got to tell you, he, he, he didn't get come close to Trump, but he was within spitting distance, would be Josh Hawley of Missouri. In a, in, in a real tight race with, with Ted Cruz of Texas. And I'll round out, and I think Trump is a, is a Penn graduate where you teach, he, he right? He is. It's a great university and, and despite that. Hawley is at Yale right. Law School. And Cruz is Princeton and Princeton Yale and, Law. Princeton and Harvard Law. So, he, I mean, he, he really, he really right. qualifies. Then we're going to come in with Dartmouth, the Big Green. Didn't get a mention yet, but so the Big Green, we're rolling down here out of Panover, New Hampshire, with Laura Ingram. We, we have we have some some gender diversity here in our in our class. We wanted to and be another sure Ivy that. League school, right? And then in another Ivy League school, and the Yale Law School comes up again, and and I think this was an easy choice in Alan Dershowitz. So that's our original five. Now one of all of our Listeners, be sure to write us with your recommendations or nominations for future Ivy League Hall of Famers. And Al's going to talk to you about the criteria. But believe you me, Willie Mays and, and, and Henry Aaron and Ted Williams, they're all going to get in. They're, okay? They're, they're all going to get in. We they're, just had to go with equipment. Yeah. yeah, well, you're right. I mean, right. I mean, Trump is the Babe Ruth uh, of this class. Uh, there's no question. He, he is in a contest with James Buchanan for the worst president ever. Uh, he's a serial liar, a cheat, a bully, who loves to hurt the less powerful. And James, he's going to leave a stain in our democracy that will take years to overcome. So uh, I love the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, this is a rare exception. They have a lot of great people. A absolutely. But, you know, it, 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 this is a very fun project. It's one that we, we give a lot of thought to and be sure that as curators of this whole Hall of Flatulence, the Sphincter Hall of Fame, if you will. We, we take our role very seriously, and we study very hard, and we, we also need study aid. So please uh, so let us know some nominees on your part. Or it's okay if you think we left somebody out or we put somebody ahead of somebody that should have been there. We're always open to having our Well, there are going to be other inductees. It's like baseball. I mean, this is just the original class. And, you know, I think we ought to just very briefly go, I mean, Josh Hawley, you mentioned, uh, everyone everyone who person who was important or mentored or enabled him david kennedy his academic advisor at stanford jack danforth who cleared the way for him to win a senate seat in missouri even his eighth grade student council colleague all say he's turned into an unprincipled hypocrite i mean james that's a lot of credentials for uh, the sphincter hall of fame yeah, it is. And, and I, I got to say, he, he worked hard. I, I want to give Josh yep. Holy credit. He really worked at being an asshole. I mean, he, he put he put time in. He did. And he was willing to go out and do it publicly. He wasn't a guy right. that, you know, he's not duplicitous. He's not an asshole in private and then doesn't act like one in public. He is across the board, world-class asshole. And even people that, did, that knew him and liked him in earlier life see that happening. So hats off to you, Senator Hawley. You've really worked hard to achieve this. And I, I, I think you're an asshole when you're sleeping. Well, I, you know, and I, Ted Cruz has two. Ted Cruz did two things. Ted Ooh. Cruz did two things that I think make him especially qualified for this. It really has nothing to do with his crazy ideology. 
But one, after Donald Trump accused his father of complicity in the assassination of President Kennedy and then suggested that his wife was ugly, a year later, the junior senator from Texas came crawling back to get in the Donald's good graces. Now, that is a all-time sphincter qualification. And then when he was caught fleeing to Cancun, James, while Texans were freezing in a pipeline crisis, he said it was all because of his daughter. Yeah, and he also said, Trump said, I'm going to spill the beans on Heidi. Trump did, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah Trump did. And and the thing that, that gives him that, that extra special first ballot kind of thing, because there's competition out there, all right? You just you just don't get in here unless you show some extraordinary assholeness. You know what I mean? And he even looks like an asshole. I mean, he fits... He fits the bill in every way, you know, in a way that like kind of Lou Gehrig, you know, looked like a baseball player. Willie Mays kind of looked like a, you know, Michael Jordan. 180 like a degrees player. the other way, just, right? Exactly. Yeah, he doesn't act the part. He also just look at Ted Cruz on Saturday Night Live, and uh, that's the that's the real Ted Cruz. You know, we have one woman in this, as you say, from the Big Green, uh, Laura Ingram. I don't know the Fox News provocateur very well, and I do admire her adoption of three little kids. But her vicious demagoguery is what gets her into the hall. She ridiculed one of the survivors of the Parkland High School mass murders. She assailed the, quote, demographic changes that have been foisted in America, end quote. Uh, I think that's people of color, uh, James. And her mindless COVID-related attacks on Dr. Anthony Fauci prompted her own brother to call her pathetic. I think she's a worthy uh, inductee. Oh, oh yes. Oh, and, and and again, you don't get into this by just doing right. one or two things. We're looking at an entire right. career that spans many, many, many years of this kind of behavior. So she she earned her spot. I mean, this was not. A, I want to assure everybody. This was not some kind of a diversity thing, or we didn't yep. feel like we had to include a female in our opening class. This was a well-earned spot on, on her right. part. Right. I don't know if she was the Ty Cobb of this class, but she was in there. Uh, and our final... Yeah, I think that's probably a better analogy. Our final inductee. Our final inductee. And again, this was an easy one. And I want all you out there to know that this top five, you know, we're very proud of the, of the group, but there were some very close contenders who will be in subsequent uh, inductions in the weeks and months ahead. Our final one is Alan Dershowitz. Yale Law School. Now, when it comes to brilliance, he probably gets an A on character and F. Uh, even conservatives laughed at his performance as one of Trump's impeachment lawyers. Then there was his close association with sexual predator pervert Jeffrey Epstein. He revels in personal attacks. When Bernie Sanders last week wrote a column calling for a more balanced approach towards the Palestinians, Dershowitz wasn't content to say, I disagree with X, Y, or Z. He said Sanders was a self loathing Jew. Dershowitz, too, over a lifetime, James, has earned this. Yeah, this is a, this, it, it, in, in Alan Dershowitz's case, I, I, I think it is a, a, well, I don't know, lifetime achievement award, because I think he's evolved into something. But th- this is, he's developed in the last, in this century, he's developed into a, a, a world-class sanctum. He really has. I mean, I mean, world-class on, on, on every level. And, uh, He's, uh, of course, he's very upset because, let, let, let's be honest here, Alan Dershowitz has faced discrimination for what he's done because he, he complained publicly that he doesn't get invited to dinner parties on Martha's, Martha's Vineyard. And I, I feel sorry, but I, the last thing in the world I'd want to do is sit next to Alan Dershowitz. At a well, no, party. there's one thing that's worse, James. He also, he, uh, he, he nude bays on a beach up there. And the last thing in the world I want to do is see, is see oh, Alan God. Dershowitz, you know, oh, nude God. bathing. Oh, God. So. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, oh, my God. Don't stay away from that. Jesus, that'll ruin, that'll ruin your whole life. <laughs> All right, listeners out there. This is, we, we are really proud of our Sphincter Hall of Fame initial inductees. But we're going to build. This hall is going to grow. There are lots of candidates. I want to remind you again, there are only three qualifications. They have to be an Ivy League graduate. They have to, to be involved in politics or public policy. We don't want any tax fraud, cheaters, or anything like that. These are people who are in the public arena. And thirdly, they have to be beyond just a jerk, as I think you saw with our five inductees. They really have to be a world-class jerk. So please, 
please send in your nominations. There are eight schools to pick from, uh, and we're going to read every nominee you send in. Right, James? Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes we might go back in history a little bit, too. An old-timers? You know, and, and, and again, have an, oh, no, yeah, an old-timers yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. You know, like like maybe Woodrow Wilson. Yeah, no, I, there's— <laughs> Well, I'd have a Democrat in there. Yeah, yeah there's some, no, some strong think. candidates for that. Uh, Absolutely. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville. I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we would really appreciate it if you'd check out the links to our sponsors, Blinkist and HelloFresh. We deeply thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning. And next week will be special. We have as our guest former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid to talk about the Senate and politics and UFOs, which he has long, long uh, said should be studied much more carefully and are much more realistic than some of the naysayers have said for years. So Harry Reid next week on the Senate, politics, and UFOs. Thank you.